Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not going to waste any time in introducing Mr. S.B. Jackson. I think you all know that he's chief designer of the Irving Parachute Company. And he's been interested in parachutes and doing something about them ever since 1942. So, no doubt, we shall learn something about parachutes we didn't know before, certainly about the history of them. He's going to show you a few slides, and at the end, he's going to put, up, put on a film which will last about ten minutes. So with that, I'll ask Mr. Jackson to give us his lecture. <clears throat> Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, at the outset, I'd like to say that some years ago, I gave a lecture on parachute design to the Yeovil branch of the society. Mindful of the location of the College of Gamesmanship in that August city, I thought I would essay some suitable remark. In saying, therefore, that I would welcome questions at the end, I added but I hope that such questions would not be asked in the spirit of one-upmanship, adding that the parachute was, after all, a more suitable subject for one-downmanship. This particular remark was greeted in utter silence. And subsequently, I asked Stephen Potter if he thought that it was because the aeronautical fraternity were ignorant of his college. And he replied that the audience were, in this case, exhibiting an extreme form of one-upmanship, which is discomforting the lecturer by pretending not to understand his jokes. I won't make the same mistake again. But no doubt you realize that I'm exhibiting a certain amount of one-upmanship myself by pretending that I have an acquaintanceship with Stephen Potter. It's a commonplace to ascribe all modern inventions to Leonardo da Vinci. And certainly, Leonardo does describe a parachute built in the form of a square sheet of linen, 36 feet across the flats. Again, several others have mentioned parachutes during the 17th and 18th centuries, but I propose not to start the history of parachutes with any of these. It is, I think, obvious that many obscure technologists may well have decided that a sheet of cloth provided resistance to air which could well be useful in attenuating the speed of a falling body. There's a good deal of the commonplace in the idea of a parachute. Essentially, a flexible body which can be stowed in a small volume that will unfold to assume a shape giving high aerodynamic drag. How many may have gazed from a high building to the street below or from a cliff or from a prison and thought in terms of a primitive parachute we shall not know. Until it was possible to make a sense from the earth, these ideas must have been largely stillborn. Even so, concurrently with the Montgolfier experiments with balloons, Sebastian Lenormand, a French physician of Montpellier, made a spectacular descent from an observatory tower in the town in, in December 1783. He had advocated the use of his apparatus largely as a means of escape from high buildings on fire. The diameter was 14 feet, which would have given a descent speed of about 27 feet per second, or somewhat more rapid than that experienced by a pilot bailing out but it is understood that the flight was stable and Lenormand received no injury, even if his primitive basket with his legs projecting below could not have been conducive to a comfortable landing. The 14 feet referred to here, of course, is the 14 feet projected diameter 
And throughout this lecture, some people may find it a bit confusing because the, there is the um, unfortunate difference in sometimes referring to both flying and flat diameter, or the, the total diameter along the, the line of the, the gauze. Subsequently, Jean-Pierre Blanchard attached a parachute to his balloon in March 1784 and was reputed on one occasion to have made a descent from it, which resulted in his breaking a leg. There is, however, some doubt about this. The mirror, not perhaps the progenitor of the daily mirror, says that Blanchard made a descent by parachute at Baal, breaking his leg in the event. But O'Hubbard, in Aeronautics, Vol. 3, 1910, states that Blanchard merely dropped from a height in essaying the effect of landing in a parachute and broke his leg in this way. In any case, I imagine that a number of RAF pilots may have had some sympathy with Blanchard. This next slide is a caricature of Blanchard's idea. This is the, the typical scheme. He had, in fact, a very much an umbrella-like device with the balloon above, and there were a number of, quite a number of caricatures of the period. It was also designed by an Englishman, Thomas Martin, who advocated the use of a rigid parachute attached to a balloon, rather like Blanchard's idea. This was again a safety device in about the same time as Blanchard, 1783. But Martin's design certainly was a theoretical one and no one used it. So I will ascribe the true invention of the parachute to the first recognized parachutist. This was a Frenchman, André-Jacques Garnerin, a man who, after being taken a prisoner during the Napoleonic Wars, took up the art of ballooning and realized the advantage of having an efficient means of escape. It is possible that the unfortunate accident to... Messier Pilato de Rosier and Romain were responsible, was responsible for Garnerin considering the parachute. I rather hope so, because it's perhaps of some regret that the parachute has been used for the first hundred years of its existence more for showmanship than life-saving. This, of course, is because the balloonists, who were the first users of parachutes, hardly needed a means of slowing down their rate of descent in an emergency more than the torn balloon itself. The numbers of fatal accidents to balloonists during the hundred years after Montgolfier is remarkably small, being hardly more than the number of fatal accidents to the showman parachutists. It's again of some interest that the latest application of parachutes is also in the form of exhibition jumping. Although modern skydivers exhibit a degree of sophistication and dreamt of by the early showmen. The history of the parachute can therefore be said to span from showman to showman. But I'm not here saying this in any derogatory sense. The early showmen were essentially those who demonstrated that the parachute could be a useful device and could subsequently be adopted for life saving. However, it lay dormant from its true invention in 1797 for some 120 years. Because the real period of parachute development dates from the end of the First World War and its intensive scientific investigation from the beginning of the Second World War. Let's return to Garnerin. Garnerin involved the idea, that the design of his parachute, whilst he was in prison in Hungary, having been captured at the Battle of Marchienne in 1793. He came to Paris after his release from prison, and at the age of 27, in, 19, in 1797, built a parachute and made plans for his first descent. In the July issue of the Journal of the Society, I've described some misunderstandings which have arisen concerning Garnard's parachute. These are, in fact, in connection with the size. If I may discuss these again, 
It's been the custom to refer to the diameter of a parachute in two ways. There's the flat, constructed diameter as a simple polygon which can be laid on the ground, and again the flying or mouth diameter. A modern custom in this country has been to describe the RAF emergency parachute by its flat diameter, which is 24 feet. Therefore, um, or at least shall I say that in fact, rather than therefore, the flying diameter is some two-thirds of this, or 16 feet. And commonly, of course, uh, in aerodynamics, it's generally the projected diameter that one's interested in in establishing a drag coefficient. So that after, if you like, one talks about the drag coefficient of a flat plate, it's the flying diameter which is used in England as the basis for the drag coefficient of the parachute. Now, Mr. Gounanar made a parachute 23-foot diameter, but it was 23-foot flying diameter. And the similarity between the 23-foot flying diameter and the 24-foot flat diameter, which has caused the confusion amongst writers on the subject. But with the parachute 23-foot flying diameter, it's probably that his parachute was something like 30-foot flat. So somewhat larger, in fact considerably larger than the RF design. Oddly enough, if people who had written about this, Hodgson for example, had looked at the area of the parachute, and it was well reported that the Garnerard's parachute was some 870 square feet, they would have realised that Garnerard's parachute must have been considerably larger than the RF emergency one, which itself is about 540 square feet of cloth. The gores of, of Garnerard's parachute were almost certainly not triangular, forming a regular polygon as the RAF one. No exact information is in fact available on the shape of his parachute, but some slight evidence does exist to show that it was made to the same shaped gore construction as the balloon itself. There is quite a large variation in sectional shape of the parachute shown in the various prints in existence of these. This is one of the photographs, one of the, uh, a slide of one of the prints of Garnard's parachute showing how it is folded in the same here. That's the balloon. Um, inflated on release from the balloon. There's another print here which does show it slightly differently in a slightly different basket. As for performance Garnard's parachute, being larger it would have a much lower vertical rate of descent than the RAF type, the RAF 24 foot type, the emergency type. Let's have a look at it in some detail. It was constructed of 32 gores and manufactured in a heavy cotton cloth similar to sail cloth. Underneath the parachute, with its 30-foot long rigging lines, was a wicker basket, 4-foot high and 2-foot diameter. At the apex of the canopy, there was a round piece of wood, 10-inch in diameter, which was held secured by 32 short pieces of tape. Inside the canopy, a hoop, also made of wood, but 8-foot diameter, was sewn to each of the seams at about 4.5 feet from the apex. This hoop served to keep the parachute partially open, as it hung suspended like a cylindrical curtain beneath the balloon, as we saw in the previous print. This was a very useful idea, and may well have been done, because earlier experiments with models showed that the rigging lines could twist during an ascent and prevent inflation of the canopy during the subsequent descent. The resistance to closing by such a hoop would have prevented the twisting of the rigging lines from occurring. Release was accomplished by simply cutting a supporting cord running from the balloon through the parachute to the wicker basket. It is interesting to note that Garnerard considered that the ideal descent rate should be 10 feet per second. It is considerably slower than that currently 
obtained by, even by regular paratroops who have a striking velocity of about 17 to 19 feet per second. However, this low descent rate was really, was rather desirable. In Gaunron's case, because his parachute was very unstable, and to the vertical descent rate must be added a considerable contribution due to oscillation. It was reported that Gaunron was often sick during the descent, and a major contribution to the instability would have been due to the lack of air permeability of the fabric. Here's a rather, uh, a slide of a rather nice print, which shows um, a number of his balloons, a number of his experiments. He used, he used balloons to drop small animals first. And then he, uh, in this slide, shows a remarkably good pictures of the sort of oscillations that were found. At some time, Garner is reputed to have put an apex, an air vent in the, uh, at the apex, an air vent. But it's very doubtful whether it would have made much improvement in stability. It's a, a common fallacy that uh, in a very unstable parachute, a small air vent may in fact make some difference, but it doesn't. An interesting indication of the type of instability which occurred is given in the mirror. 28th July 1837, which stated that Garnard's parachute had a rotatory motion. This is the only indication I've found in, in any literature that the parachute coned, which is a typical form of motion for a so-called unstable parachute. Notwithstanding this, his various descents were widely acclaimed and he made many successful parachute descents throughout Europe. He made the first parachute descent in England on September the 21st, 1802 ascending from Grosvenor Square to a height of 8,000 feet, and cutting himself loose from the balloon, he descended in his parachute to a point close to where Maribyrn Station is now. Parachutes of Garnwell's design were used both by himself and his wife Jeanne, and also by their niece, Mademoiselle Elisa Garnwell, who made several exhibition descents in Europe. The next landmark in parachute design was the descent of Robert Cocking in 1837. The most important feature, for example, in discussions by aeronauts about Garnard's parachute design was the instability shown here. In 1810, Sir George Cayley presented proposals published in Nicholson's journal for a stable parachute, based effectively on an inverted cone. This idea, aerodynamically correct, but structurally unsound, was brought to fruition by Robert Cocking. Cocking was a watercolour artist by profession, and he witnessed Garnard's descent in 1802 when he was 25 years old, and he made his descent in this parachute at the age of 61 in July 1837. The parachute, in order to obtain adequate strength, was heavily reinforced with metal hoops and finally weighed some 400 pounds. It was manufactured in 22 gores of Irish linen, 35 feet in diameter, at its wide upper end, and would have probably had a normal landing speed with the sort of weight involved of about 21 feet per second. A good deal has been written about Cocking's descent, but suffice it to say that the parachute almost certainly collapsed because of structural failure of the fabric and by distortion of the metal framework under the air pressure. There's a slide about to come showing the parachute in its failed state. You can see how they... Um, Obviously, the fabric would have fluttered. There was obviously an enormous, enormous load on the metal hoop. On the, on, I beg it, it was a tin tube at the top. And, in fact, uh, in some um, papers, in the Morning Herald, for example, on two or three days after the descent, 
it was stated that the parachute had collapsed during uh, lifting it in Vauxhall Gardens from where it took off, and they had to repair the hoop, the hoop, the top hoop by splicing it. Well, now, there's a good deal of, of um, conflict in the descriptions of Cocking's ascent and descent. In the Penny Mechanic for July 29, 1837, several eyewitnesses gave quite different accounts. Professor Airy, the astronomer, who saw the event through a telescope from Sydenham Common, now I beg your pardon, from the astronomer, from the, from Greenwich, said that it, um, it flew in its normal shape for about four, four or five seconds and then collapsed. There was another observer on Sydenham Common who said that it uh, descended for some 10 seconds in its normal form, and then the upper hoop collapsed, causing an increase in the descent rate, subsequently further distortion and breakup of the fabric. One of the perhaps interesting possibilities about the failure was that Cocking had a device which was reputed to enable him to glide his parachute. Um, he, was, uh, he was able to, as it were, tilt it, move to one side. And it, it is just possible that he may have tried this, and of course having an uneven airload on one side has caused the collapse. There has been, if you probably, people who are interested may have seen Hagener's suggestion in, um, in uh, I think it was in flight some months ago, in which it was suggested that um, something during the release of the, parachute, of the parachute from the balloon caused it. But I, I think this is somewhat doubtful. Now, Cocking was certainly a pioneer, and he's been praised very much as one, but Hodgson doesn't give him very much credit. And since the design is structurally unsound, I rather take Hodgson's view of the matter. For in the whole of the subsequent history of the parachute, design has been basically of the umbrella structure. Now, the first successful British parachutists were John Hampton, who, having made several balloon ascents, descended by parachute on October the 3rd, 1838, at Cheltenham. After Cocking's unfortunate accident in 1837, there was considerable opposition to the resumption of parachuting. So far, only one aeronaut had saved his life by parachute. And this was a Pole called Cuparento or Cuparentco. And he was reputed to have used a parachute to save his life when his Montgolfier balloon ignited during the flight over Warsaw. There's a good deal of doubt about this event. Monk Mason in an unpublished letter to the Morning Herald on the eve of Cocking's descent, says that it took place on July the 24th, 1804. But in his list of first ascents published in his Aeronautica, 1838, he states that it took place on July 24th, 1808. It's possible that the earlier date is an uncorrected misprint. For example, Depuy Delcourt in his list also gives 1808. But Delcourt doesn't mention the, the exact date, the day of the month, nor does he mention the parachute escape. Oddly enough, July 24th, 1808, if it was in the modern calendar, was on a Sunday, and I think it's a bit doubtful that there would have been uh, these spectacular events on Sunday. They were effectively for showmanship, and money changed hands, and the spectators had to pay effectively to, to witness the ascent, and I think, generally speaking, um, the, the trend would have not been in favour of, um, of this being the case. It's possible, of course, that Warsaw, like Russia, or Poland, like Russia, didn't change the calendar until uh, a good deal later, and therefore the date's in dispute. But I've looked through 
a number of press records round about the time, round about both 1804 and 1808, and there's no mention at all of this event. This is either in the Times or the Morning Huddle or the Gazette, the Courier. Oddly enough, little's been written about Kaparenko anywhere in England and France, except that Grand Carteret in the Conquête de l'Air Vue par l'Image, published in 1909 in Paris, refers to a notice about another balloon ascent and ascribes the event, this is another ascent of Kaparenko, he ascribed it to a town in Finland. Uh, some Finnish friends of mine have seen this and expressed doubt about it. The ascent itself states that it took place, took place in Vauxhall Gardens, although this is the announcement's in French and Polish. Now, if it took place in Vauxhall Gardens in London, I should imagine that Hodgson would have said something about it, but he doesn't. It's possible, of course, that a number of, of uh, balloon arenas were, rena were named Vauxhall Gardens after the famous one in London, but this is something that so far has been uh, certainly a mystery. But let's return to Hampton. Hampton's exploit at Cheltenham, this was his first descent, his first balloon descent, was made after a ruse, which he deliberately cut himself free after agreeing to make only a captive balloon ascent at the end of a restraining cable. I haven't got, unfortunately, a decent slide of, of, um, of Hampton. This shows the sort of thing that they used to, to advertise there, their um, exploits. The parachute descent was made from six, some 6,000 feet, and it's reported that the drop was stable and slow. Subsequently, he made a further descent from Cremorne Gardens in London on July the 13th, 1839, and there followed many other successful exhibition jumps. His parachute was a very interesting design. It isn't, I'm afraid, very well shown there. It consisted of a gingham fabric umbrella reinforced by 16 radii or ribs of pieces of whalebone riveted together and supported by 16 bamboo stays. These latter were rather like the supporting ribs of an umbrella. There was also a central copper tube passing from the apex of the parachute to the basket. At the periphery of the parachute was a two-yard-wide curtain and the whole parachute was covered in a net. Sixteen cords were attached to the net and sixteen to the ends of the whalebone ribs forming, as it were, a double set of leading lines. There are some slight variants about the details of the shape. Some observers, I beg your pardon, of the diameter. Some observers give the diameter as 15 feet. The mechanic and chemist of July 22nd, 1839, says that it was 16 feet. This, again, will be the flying diameter, and you can see here that Hampton's parachute was about roughly the same diameter as the present air emergency one. Subsequently, a number of showmen made parachute descents in the 1840s and 1850s. In England, there was a Lieutenant Gale RN, an adventurer of some parts, who subsequently died in a balloon accident when he wasn't carrying a parachute. In his case, the basket was accidentally cut free, and Gale ascended only, holding onto the ropes of the balloon. He lost his grip and fell to his death. Other Englishmen at about this time made balloon ascents, sometimes with a live animal, which suffered the parachute descent. The period of circus exhibitions lasted throughout the whole of the remainder of the 19th century. In the 1880s, Major Thomas Baldwin, an American, made numerous descents all over the world. Together with an, an Italian, G.A. Farini, who, an inventor who lived in London for some time, Baldwin patented a flexible silk parachute, one of the early useful patents in the field. In England, in the 1890s, the brother Spencer, sons of the famous Edward Spencer, did a large number of exhibition jumps. In Germany, Fräulein Kathy Paulus took part in many circus exhibition descents. 
She also made dual jumps with her fiancé, her Latiman, who was subsequently killed in the parachute descent. In France, somewhat earlier, Monsieur and Madame Poitevin became famous, and they also made exhibition jumps on horseback. These, uh, with a somewhat inevitable element of cruelty to the animal, which was merely suspended by a sort of band around the stomach, belly. The, these events caused John Hampton to enter into a quarrel with the Poitevins. He wrote letters to the paper decrying this sort of showmanship. There are a number of names I've not given. They're perhaps relatively more or less unimportant. And if anyone in the audience has a particular passion for somebody I've not mentioned, I apologize. By this time, there was a certain solidity in the design, solidification. The general tendency was to use a parachute of about 30-foot flat diameter. Hardly more hemispherical in form than Garnra seems to have been. The apex of the stretched parachute was tethered to the balloon at some convenient position, usually at about the maximum diameter. And there was a, it was tethered by a cotton cord, 80 pounds in strength. There was a, the, the crude attachment of, of the harness, a sort of, in this case, a, a rope harness which is round the body and fastened to a metal hook. This had replaced the basket. It was often just a ring, in this case as it's shown, for the parachutist to hold on to. It's probable that the parachutist would now manually prevent or eliminate twist, which might occur in the rigging lines during the ascent, and the need for a cumbersome device to hold the parachute open during the ascent was therefore obviated. The parachute weighed 30 pounds, so that when the parachutist wished to make the descent, his weight plus the 30 pounds of parachute was well adequate to break the 80-pound apex tie. Until about 1880, little useful developments in materials took place. But by the last 20 years of the century, developments had crystallized, and at least the use of the silk fabric I referred to, this was about two and a half ounces per square yard in weight. Little attention was paid to weight saving in general, and the rigging lines were made of heavy twisted hemp or cotton cordage. Towards this time, the use of balloons for military observation purposes became important. Members of the society will know the first experiment with an observation balloon was at the Battle of Fleuris in June 1794, and subsequently various nations formed balloon corps. For these were provided parachutes as a means of escape. The Spencer parachute and the guardian angel type developed by E.R. Colthrop became important in this country. The aeroplane was necessary before... Much effort could be put into developments to refine the material used in the construction of parachutes. Here's some idea of the sort of cumbersome devices they, they had. One might mention, on passant, what little during the 19th century was done beyond the use of parachutes for life-saving and circus performing. Experiments had earlier been conducted by Montgolfier and Blanchard in which animals were dropped. But these, of course, must be considered as part of the experiment towards man-carrying. It's interesting to note, however, that in 1850, Green, famous Aaron made nine balloons for the Branch Arctic Expedition at the expense of Lady Franklin. Um, I don't know who are interested, who those might be interested in, in Arctic exploration, but about that time, uh, some expeditions were sent to the Arctic to search for Sir John Franklin, who had been lost in 1847. In fact, was never found. Green designed a balloon which was some 30 foot cubic foot capacity, and a range capability of 500 to 600 miles. At the bottom of his balloon were attached a series of packets and parachutes, 
And these were dropped off at intervals, using the slow match to release them. This was to, to um, if you like, deliver messages. He demonstrated his system to Lady Franklin, but there's no evidence that the system was used in the Arctic. However, it's the first recorded use of dropping supplies and messages by means of a passion. Let's return to the turn of the century, for we've now arrived at the era of the aeroplane. I now propose to digress a little, to consider a subject equally important in parachute design and development, but which has perhaps undeservedly received a good deal less attention. This is the design of the parachute envelope, or pack, and the harness, particularly the latter. As we'd have seen already, when the parachute was used only from dis for descent from a stationary balloon, the shock loads imposed upon the men were small. It was possible to hang onto a bar or a ring and leap into space without undue strain, at least to the body. With the coming of the observation balloon, something a little more elaborate was required. Here the parachute had to be packed into a convenient form of container. In England, two parachute assemblies used and referred to above, the Colstock Guardian Ains and the Spencer type, had different arrangements. The wearer was attached by means of a static line to the pack and it was carried outside the wicker basket of the observation balloon. When it was necessary to abandon the, the balloon, the observer jumped free and pulled the parachute from its container as he, as he moved down. This free descent prior to and during deployment of the parachute gave a somewhat increased shock load and therefore a simple harness had to be designed. But it will be readily seen that some form of harness was necessary if only for convenience. To some extent this must have been a new field. There were no industrial harnesses available at the time and probably the prototype of the harness would have come from something like the bosun's chair. The subsequent development of harnesses to distribute the load of an opening parachute evenly around the body is almost unique to the parachute requirement. In the early days, harnesses were made of leather and of cotton and flax webbings. Subsequently, as one will imagine, leather was totally excluded, but flax webbings remain extant to the present day. And only very recently have they begun to be replaced by webbings manufactured from synthetic materials. The crude harnesses designed at the beginning of the century bore little relation, perhaps, to the sophisticated combined ejection seat and parachute harnesses today. But in many cases, the history of the development of the modern harness can be seen in these old types. Here's a sort of idea of the type. Some of these are pretty fearsome devices. Here, for example, is a German aeroplane harness which was exceedingly dangerous. No leg straps, nothing at all. But the other things happen to be just parachutes. The guardian angel harness, which is shown here, on the left and again on the right, with a single strap there, also equally uncomfortable. But it contains the central idea of the quick-release box, which is a common feature of most modern designs of escape parachutes. The advent of the aeroplane became, as it were, the raison d'etre of the parachute. And yet, for a considerable period, there was a good deal of opposition. In the pronouncements of eminent men and others during the 19th century, there were few who had any conception as to the value and extent of the subsequent development of the parachute. I've already said that most observers thought the parachute to be relatively unimportant. And certainly, as far as ballooning was concerned, of little practical use. Green, for example, in his um, evidence at the inquest of cocking, uh, made uh, satisfactory comments about uh, the design compared to garner arms, but said that the parachute was really quite useless and would never be of any value. 
However, amongst the early dissenters was James Glacier. Glacier was, as you will all know, one of the founding members of the Aeronautical Society in 1866. He wrote the article on aeronautics in the ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, published in 1875, and there he does imply that the parachute might be considered to be ultimately of use. His exact words were, Though we shall notice any particular remarkable sense, chiefly refer to the few that have been undertaken for the sake of advancing science, and which are also of permanent value. It would be necessary to make one exception to the rule, however, in the case of the parachute, the experiments which will require some notice, although they have been yet put to no useful purpose. Even so, through the rest of the century, in the early 1900s, the parachute was often dismissed by writers on the subject as being of little importance. It would seem that hardly any aviation authority could appreciate that once the aircraft, with its vastly improved maneuverability, had been set on the road of development, many airmen would be killed in accidents if an escape device was not provided. Indeed, up to a date, towards the end of the First World War, a total of some 850 airmen lost their lives in, in aircraft accidents. Yet, in eight, 1916, Borlase Matthews could write in the aviation pocketbook, it may be pointed out that the many suggestions as to the uses of parachutes in aeroplanes do not take account of the fact that in the case of an engine stoppage or the like, the aeroplane itself acts as efficiently as a parachute and has the additional advantage of allowing the landing ground to be chosen. Indeed, in the 1970 edition of the pocketbook, there was no mention of the parachute at all, but in the 1918 edition, there was a full description of the Guardian Angel safety parachute. The real reasons for these objections are still somewhat of a mystery. It's possible that they were raised during the war by those authorities who felt that to provide an escape facility was to invite unnecessary abandonment of the aircraft. Whether this callous attitude was serious or not is difficult to tell, but it's well known that safety devices have always been slow of recognition, and apart from the question of the general state of development of the escape device itself, there were always those who objected on the grounds that to install a parachute would be tantamount to admitting that the aircraft was unsafe. Without counting the numerous airmen who fell out of aircraft during manoeuvres, no understanding was apparent of the possible developments of the aircraft towards greater flight and landing speeds. The Germans, however, installed parachutes in military aircraft towards the end of the war, and the first recorded escape in battle was in 1918. A subsequent, artic subsequent article in the Air Service Journal asked whether parachutes should not now be seriously considered by the Allied Air Forces. Throughout this period, Calthrop, with his guardian angel parachute, had been waging an unceasing advertising campaign in favour of the adoption of his parachute, already being used to drop agents behind the enemy lines. Calthrop proposed that the parachute should be installed in the aircraft here, and he had a static line attached to the wearer, so that when the wearer leapt into space, he would pull out the parachute from the container. However, this idea was not particularly satisfactory. To attach a parachute pack to an aircraft so that the wearer deployed the parachute from it by means of a static line is hardly the preferred method of escape. The separating force, particularly with slow aircraft, may never have been very great, and in a spin it was a fatal arrangement. Even in the best of conditions, there would also the possibility of the parachute tearing on the tail skid. The history of the tests that were done by the Parachute Experimental Unit of the Air Ministry during this time are not fully available and yet certain that much of historical interest will be covered, uncovered if the reports could be examined 
I think we'll have a look at the next slide, which is a similar device. This is a Mears parachute. Again, the same idea, but instead of having the parachute in a container, quite obviously this aircraft had been fitted up to have the, con the, the guardian angel parachute. He had it on his back. But these were generally the system, both in England and France and Germany, at the end of the First World War. The idea it was not the, the idea not yet developed that the parachute should be attached to the man, not to the aircraft. Well, let's just say that the real development for the installation of parachute frame came from America. At about this time, an experimental unit had been set up in the United States, and a great many descents with different types were done. Opinion was swinging over to the idea of a free parachute in which the wearer would abandon the aircraft and subsequently deploy, deploy his parachute by some manually controlled device. The first successful tests of such a system were made, I should say, perhaps the first successful test, singular. But the first test was made by Leslie Irving, the founder of my own company. It had generally been thought that the wearer would be unconscious shortly after leaving the aircraft and would find it impossible to pull the ripcord. But Irving had some experience as a high-diving stunt performer. And this convinced him that this was not the case. He had no hesitation, therefore, in making a descent with a flat parachute, 24 foot in diameter, exactly the same as the RAF emergency one common now. This was designed by the U.S. Air Service Board, but he used a device of his own invention which allowed him to release the parachute manually, the canopy being deployed by means of a spring-loaded auxiliary parachute. The parachute and inflate it some 600 feet below the test aircraft. This descent was made on April 23, 1919, from a DH-4 at McCook Field, and from that time the parachute industry was born. Another of the early pioneers in the USA, deserving of mention, was the American balloonist Leo Stevens, who was a U.S. Army instructor. Indeed, by 1919, the considerable efforts by the United States Air Service Board under the leadership of Floyd Smith and Major E.L. Hoffman, were mainly responsible for the development of the modern parachute as it went into service with the air forces of the world between the two wars. The Air Service Board was the first authority to make a clear statement of the ideal qualities of a parachute used by him, and they published a, a proposal which went into something like 10 or 11 aims, which stated effectively what the parachute had to do, had to be. The parachute that went into service was made of a habutai, a Japanese silk, and the rigging lines were now constructed of a braided silk cordage. The harness was of flax, which is a remarkably successful fibre for this type of work, which has a high resistance to sunlight and abrasion. The metal fittings now began to show signs of the understanding amongst designers of the need to reduce weight, so much subject close to the heart of the aircraft designer. To some extent, however, the adoption of the parachute was still slow, and as late as 1930, efforts to introduce it into light civil aircraft were not very successful. But the introduction of the parachute into military aviation was an accomplished fact. Many of the subsequent detailed developments in man-carrying parachutes were due to the industry at the time. And what's perhaps remarkable is that with guidance from people like Irving, the fabric was such that almost by chance the textile firms hit upon the right sort of construction of the cloth, without really understanding many of the essential features of the parachute design. The parachute silk is a lightweight fabric, one and a half ounce per square yard in weight, 
with a tensile strength of 40 pounds per inch warp and weft. This was the basis in England of a government specification for parachute silk fabric, DTD 69, and this is a, a specification still extant. It's impossible, however, to develop on, to, to dwell upon the, all the aspects of parachute production and design at this stage. The Irving 24 foot flat parachute was basically satisfactory and still very much in service today, using synthetic materials, both for non-ejection seat use and for the Martin Beck ejection seat. Let's now talk about the essential qualities of the ideal parachute. Simply, they are that it shall always inflate, that it shall be stable in descent, and that it shall have a low shock load. But in stating this, there are some contradictions which are difficult to reconcile. The early pioneers in parachute design must have seen cases where parachutes did not inflate. Most of these failures must have been accredited either to bad packing or to the occurrence of twists or abnormalities during deployment. It was not apparent to these early workers that a parachute has a speed above which it will not inflate. If the so-called squidding speed or critical speed, here is a squidding parachute. I'll explain what a parachute is later. But, um, effectively, here is the parachute in a stable condition, but not inflated. If this squidding speed or critical opening speed is below the terminal velocity of a given parachute stream behind a given store, then the parachute will not inflate. In progress, because this was not fully understood, in basic uh, development and design was slow. In 1923, a report summarising the early British investigations was written by Jones for the ARC. This is R&M 862. Parachutes of different designs were considered, and it's interesting perhaps to note that Sir Geoffrey Taylor was concerned with parachutes at the stage, and I was told that he did a descent at Cambridge when Major Audley's came to demonstrate the Guardian Angel type. Fundamental work was done at the NPL, and reported in a number of unpublished reports of the Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Some of these were summarised in the RNM I just mentioned. But the appreciation of the critical opening velocity of parachutes didn't occur until the beginning of the Second World War. The credit for this goes to the Royal Aircraft Establishment, where a section had been set up in 1941 to investigate parachutes, and also to the Washington Single Laboratories at Exeter. The experimental information came from work done by Brown in the Armament Department at RAE, when investigations of parachutes had led to, at that time, unexpected failures. The need to widen the use of various types of cloths available to parachutes by the new type of warfare had led to a selection of unsatisfactory weaves. So-called flare cloth, the porous cotton <coughs> fabric, was one of the materials which gave a considerable number of failures when parachutes manufactured from it were dropped with certain paratechnic stores. The problem was accentuated because fabric can only be woven in a certain range of porosity, more or less wide, depending on the cloth. Investigations were done in the 24-foot tunnel, and it was soon apparent that a discovery of fundamental importance had been made. This squidding parachute is in the 24-foot tunnel. The reason why it had not so far been discovered with man-carrying parachutes was that the pioneers had used porous cloths. Of course, the more porous the cloth, the greater the drag, and therefore the drag efficiency of the parachute. However, parachutes made of porous fabrics tend to be unstable, and because they inflate rapidly, and don't allow any air flow of air through the cloth, they tend to have high shock loads. These are the essential contradictions in the design requirements. 
And much of the current efforts of the aircraft designer have been in reconciling the difficulties. I've already mentioned some of the military uses of the parachute which were to become so important during the Second World War. But it's interesting to note that the suggestions for the use of parachutes for reconnaissance flare dates from something like 1929, whilst the use of parachutes for fighting troops was advocated about 1935. Parachute bomb was proposed and an issue of the scientific American as far back as 1912. The Second World War itself gave an enormous boost to parachute development and manufacture. Earlier, the Russians and the Germans had demonstrated the possibilities of invasion by massed parachute troops, and this, of course, was to become a reality in 1942. The major powers of the world set about operating parachute training schools for paratroops and forming paratroop forces. Coincidental with this, aircraft speeds could escape an emergency from aircraft, increased with a consequent need for further investigations into materials and into methods of deployment, although little or no increase in strength was needed for Second World War aircraft. Since the war, the ejection seat has made a major contribution to the saving of life, and developments in this field are still of major importance to the parachute designer. Developments during the war, other than for man-carrying purposes, were largely concerned with supply dropping, with parachute for armament stores, bombs, mines, flares, and so on. During the war, too, experiments began in the use of a parachute to steepen the glide path of an aircraft. The technique was used on D-Day, when a small number of gliders detailed to capture a bridge at car, used tail parachutes to enable them to land with accuracy. The Germans used brake parachutes for fighter aircraft of the ME-163 class, and subsequently the brake parachute has become a commonplace for reducing the landing run of military fighters and bomber aircraft. During the war, the Germans made substantial contributions to parachute design. They introduced the ribbon parachute, for example, which was constructed of two-inch wide ribbons woven in this case concentrically. They also produced a similar design in which they were, 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 were I said woven, but they weren't woven. They were actually um, manufactured, stitched. There was a design which was um, in which the ribbons were rather like the spokes of a wheel. This parachute is now commonly used for brake parachutes. Here's the brake parachute for a lightning aircraft. And the design, using these two-inch wide ribbons, has been developed into using wider fabrics, um, the so-called ring slot type. This is the um, tail of the Victor aircraft with a ring slot parachute. You can see that the, um, the width of the fabric is a good deal wider, but essentially the same type of design. The Germans were also responsible for the design of a very stable parachute, now known as the mushroom type, or very tight. Given the name of um, light flash and shear and guide surface, this is, uh, as we probably see, is a um, picture taken again in the 24th tunnel. It should be sideways rather than there. The Germans also introduced a series of pocket bands with peripheral tape stitched across the rigging points of the canopy, which were capable of much increasing the critical opening speed. In Britain, the parachute, which is the Parachute was the thing I showed you squidding before, and here's the, a typical pair of them flying on a paratechnic store. Um, you'll notice that the parachute tends to fly somewhat square because the loading at the peripheral points, um, peripheral points themselves, have got different, uh, you're effectively attaching them with different weaves, either along the, along or across at various angles to the weave, and therefore this gives a different stretch to the cloth 
and causes this rather square shape. This parachute, which is a very cheap construction of canopy, and the shape gore canopy, which is designed to have zero tension, developed at the Washington Single Laboratory at Exeter, and subsequently much exploited by the parachute section of the Royal Establishment. Here's the shape parachute, again on a paratechnic store. An explanation of the critical opening and closing phenomena was given by Duncan. I will here mention that the parachute has a squilling speed, <coughs> above which it will not inflate. Complementary to this, there's a, a critical closing speed, at which, if the canopy is inflated and towed in, at an increasing speed, it will collapse. Both these critical phenomena are associated with the fact that the air permeability of the fabric increases with pressure. Thus, as a squidding parachute decelerates, the effective permeability of the fabric reduced, and the parachute is able to inflate because the inflow can now exceed the outflow. Again, if an open parachute is towed at increasing speed, the permeability increases, and the direction of flow of the air at the periphery can become an inwards force, thus tending to collapse the parachute. The proposed parachute design was suggested by Young, in which the vent area was in porous, giving good inflation characteristics, and the peripheral area porous, giving good stability. And this biporosity design has been engineered and exploited by my own company with considerable success. This is, in fact, the currently adopted parachute for parachutes in this country. The field of supply dropping throughout the war was of great importance. It ranged from the dropping of light stores of the order of 350 pounds to beyond that of a gun and jeep weighing some 4,000 pounds. And this has been developed until drops have been made with a total weight of some 40,000 pounds. This is a drop of some large parachutes designed manufactured by the GQ Parachute Company. Naturally, coincidental with all these efforts, a good deal of development of textiles have been done, both for strength and economy. For example, parachutes to drop a supply load of up to 500 pounds have been designed, which are a third of the cost of the parachute manufactured by Irving for emergency use in 1930. Since the war, too, parachutes for recovery of guided missiles have been developed in many countries, notably the United States. And parachutes were also used for a number of meteorological applications, notably for sounding rockets. These parachutes are made radar responsive by coating the fibers with a metallic film. The applications are indeed undreamed of by the early workers in the field. In conclusion, I would like to return to the man-carrying uses of the parachutes, also always a subject close to the heart of the designer. First, I would like to pay a tribute to the Martin Baker Jackson seat which, in conjunction with the I-24 canopy developed in this country, is able to save life, the life of an aircrew member, bailing out at runway level between 90 knots and 600 knots, and with a rocket seat now at the runway level with no forward speed. This is a picture of the parachute as it is pulling the, the airman from the, from the seat, from the objection seat, and this is the parachute inflated. What I'd really like to do is finally to pay a tribute to poor old Robert Cocky, who I rather treated churlishly earlier on. For one of the latest ideas in the field of parachute development is the Douglas Paracone. This is a sort of inflatable inverted cone parachute at which the man or store is carried inside the cone itself. I'm not sure that it is suitable to replace the conventional parachute in the various roles I've discussed above, by which I mean that it has a lower weight and volume penalty, but it would perhaps have comforted poor old Cocking to know that his proposal at last been given real consideration.
I'm sure you'll all agree with me that we've had a most interesting lecture. Now, I'm not going to say anything myself to start with. I'm going to throw the discussion open in the hope that some of you will get up and ask questions. If not, I'm going to try one or two on the lecture myself. disadvantage was in its comparatively low squidding speed. The, the difficulty that's always been experienced since 
people use parachutes for use with aircraft has been in reconciling this question of stability and good opening characteristics. Um, if you make a parachute which is uh, heavily shaped or very porous, you can make it stable. If you do so, then in the sort of things that happen when people pull rip cords and you get um, um, comparatively haphazard deployment of the reading lines, you get conditions which they will cause a twist in the lines, and if there's any hesitation at all, the parachute won't open. It will do what parachutes called in the war Roman can walk. The Russell Lowe's parachute was, unfortunately, somewhat prone to this. And therefore, particularly for emergency use, um, although in the early days the um, parachute was adopted by uh, quite a number of um, people, it never became in favour with the Air Force here and was never adopted. As far as the um, Gawler's parachute is concerned, it's a very interesting design. This parachute, which is like the forerunner of all the skydiving parachutes which are used today, was originally produced to, to give stability. The stability was obtained by the inherent drift. That is, that as the gauze cut out, the parachute is now asymmetrical and will drift in certain direction. This drift itself um, puts the parachute at a different angle of attack to the wind. Instead of it being normal through the axis, it now is at a, at a certain angle. This converts a normally unstable parachute to a stable one, um, using stability in this true sense that if it's disturbed, it will go back with reasonably high degree of damping to its original position. It's not particularly useful for the design that it was originally produced for, the parachute use, because many parachute operations have to be done in the dark, and you can't see the direction of the wind. And if you were in fact drifting with the wind, instead of away from the wind, you merely convert your parachute into something which is going to give you a, a high injury rate. Um, as a parachute for development of skydivers, as I've said, it's very valuable. I think um, that it's not likely to be adopted in this sense. Uh, there is an interesting point, perhaps, here that many people have... Um, considered that they invented it. Uh, if one looks at the old patents of parachutes, one's amazed how much has been, as you, if you like, reinvented. But certainly, I think it's fair to ascribe it. Thank you, Pat. I asked if Kev Frank provide just a little bit on the 1917 private harness, which uh, what I assume to be the first book of these books, which we've used, and I think we've possibly well, I, I really can't because um, I haven't got any further details than one sees in the print. This, these um, slides that I showed were, were taken from photographs in the possession of the society. One of the extraordinary things about this period is that extremely little has been written, published, um, uh, or at least what has been done, very, very difficult to find. Um, an enormous amount of stuff has obviously been done, but it all seems to have disappeared. We've got no records of any of these um, guardian angel types, DQs, who uh, Mr. Gregory, I think, had um, got something to do with the, with Calthrop. He also has got, uh, or he left, uh, he died, remarkably little to the GQ Parachute Company, 
uh, a great deal seems to have been lost, and it's rather odd that uh, this period, which is only 40, 50 years ago, represents uh, an era which obviously is very valuable to us, but in which incredibly little can be found. I spend a lot of time, in fact, looking through um, literature on this, but I've, um, I find that that particular time um, is very difficult to get information about. I have, for example, an interesting French document, which was published in 1924, and refers to all the parachutes for aircraft, effectively an referring here to um, emergency parachutes, that were extant at the time. Um, it's the only copy, it's the thing I bought in the bookshop in Paris, and it's the only time I've ever seen it. I don't know whether there's a copy anywhere else, but quite obviously there must be copies in, in, um, certainly in certain reference libraries of some kind, but I certainly don't know where they are. This is one of the difficulties in this field, that particularly between, say, 1900 or in fact, even earlier, 1890, when the Spencer brothers did a great deal of ballooning throughout the world, and about 1920-25, an awful lot's been done and an awful lot has been lost. Now, the Great of Retardation, when the parachute opens on the land, and also the uh, reason for the river parachute, and the reason for the homes to be against or such Retardation of the man, of course, is very much dependent on the uh, speed at which he leaves the aircraft. It probably would be easier to answer this by saying that the sort of decelerations which occur in leaping out, say, about 140 knots, at about 5 or 6 g with an emergency parachute, and they will rise to about 20 g at something like 250 to 280 knots. It's very likely, in fact, that the parachute can be made, or it is effectively adequately strong, to produce a G-loading on the man which would uh, be sufficient to kill him. There are some cases, for example, where pilots used parachutes at very great altitudes where the shock load can be high because the parachute opens very rapidly, and... Uh, Parachute, though in these cases, where in this particular case I'm thinking about, in America was damaged, it did cause severe injury to the man because of the high G on him and the difficulty distributing the loads. The ribbon parachute was designed, we thought, in Germany, because they found it difficult to control the permeability, the air permeability of the cloth, and by stitching the parachute in the way it's done, they were able to produce reasonably good control, velocity, this air permeability being a very important parameter, at the cost of very great expense. Uh, it has been suggested also that it was produced because the French um, textile industry was very strong in, um, in narrow fabrics, and therefore in the war, when um, it was necessary to perhaps expand the parachute industry enormously, this was, if you like, a, a useful field which had to be tapped. In fact, the parachute made in the ribbon form is very much stronger for a given bulk. That is, that if you want to design a parachute with very high strengths, um, or you need, for example, in the case of a brake parachute, very high loadings, 
And since the one of the important parameters in the parish was to get low bulk or high strength bulk ratios, the ribbon parachute comes into its own. With the tight tightness of the weave, um, you can get um, good strength with very with, with uh, relatively low thickness compared to a, com- a comparable fabric. You then can um, construct the parachute with appropriate gaps to give you a satisfactory overall permeability and um, this will uh, give you where you need high strength a very useful design. As far as the apex is concerned I think there's only one real use for the apex and that is that if you try to manufacture a parachute which hasn't got a hole in it it's very difficult. So you can't stitch together all the the gauze at the top where they all meet the apex with the very with the rigging line so close together in fact you have to make it if you're going to make it with any kind of reasonably efficiency with a some sort of bent ring or some sort of periphery, periphery at that point you can then of course as we do in the biporosity design cap the vent as far as stability is concerned it's probably re- relatively, relatively little importance and that uh, as I've said um, you can do a good deal better by having a more, more porous area around the peripheral band rather than on the, the peripheral hem rather than the apex. Um, so that uh, perhaps in one or two marginal cases you might improve the, the stability as was the proposal. Very many people have said that small boys have suggested to parachutists put a hole in it at the vent and it's alright this was stated about Baldwin for example but certainly Garner had a hole in some of his second parachute design but it's very doubtful it makes all that difference, in fact any difference in Garner's case to stability it does of course mean that the air can get through the apex relatively easily, easily, easily and therefore in fact it does tend to give you perhaps not such a good opening could I myself ask you three or four questions um, you may not like to answer some of them the first in particular wasn't was there not some prominent person in the air force who said during the first war pilots must not leave their ship therefore they must not have a parachute they must be like a sailor they must stick to their ship to their airplane and do their best to get it down the second question referred to Dr. Jones's report, scientific report. You mentioned Sir Geoffrey Taylor. If that was the first um, scientific attempt to design parachutes, then I can find you the minute where Sir Richard Glazebrook asked Sir Geoffrey Taylor across the table, look here, Taylor, will you sit down and do a little mathematics on this and let us have a report. I can find you that minute, if it happens, that that is the first real scientific attack. Now, you didn't mention anything at all about pilot shoots. I may be wrong, but I thought pilot shoots have added tremendously to the safety because they have brought out the main canopy. And I wonder whether you could tell us a little more about the history of that. And my last question was um, using a number of parachutes for a load. Does not the stability increase enormously if you use four or more parachutes 
to bring your load down. I hope I haven't asked you too many all at once. Can I just have the first one again? Uh, did not some person high up in the Royal Air oh, yes, Force? Yes. I haven't mentioned any names deliberately. Yeah. Well, uh, it's very interesting that Mr. Naylor should uh, ask one or two questions, particularly about the First World War period and just afterwards, because he himself, as probably many of you know, was very much concerned. I mean, RNA makes it to Mr. Naylor's name appears more than once. I think the question about whether some high up Air Force officer, whether it was a general or I don't know, um, said that um, pilots mustn't leave their ship is something that, um, that I've not been able to find. I imagine that, that this was almost certainly the case, that someone perhaps very senior must have, um, must have made the point that if, um, apart from any question of, uh, of leaving the ship, that there'd be too much pressure to bail out if they were provided the means of escape. Uh, it's interesting, perhaps, to note that subsequently, apart from any question of the, of the um, military aspect, there were certainly some cases in Belgium in about 19, the 1930s when the pilots seemed to exhibit a certain joy in bailing out. This, as far as we can tell, was in order to be awarded caterpillars. <laughs> there are certainly several Belgians who jumped out two or three times and of course this must have been a very expensive pastime um, it would be interesting to know in fact if this is the case if some particular Air Force officer did say this uh, I imagine that, uh, that the archives do, do there must be some minutes of meetings at which something of this nature may have been said I've not been able to find it and I'm certainly interested to know as far as Sir Geoffrey Taylor's concerned, yes, I think this is the case. But, um, I haven't, I don't think I've seen the, the minute, but I've seen one or two minutes about Taylor's interest in parachutes, and the Taylor shape is, as you know, one of the earliest scientific investigations made. I think that Britain, at that time, made considerable contributions to science, and RNM862 um, gives some tunnel tests and some uh, mathematical work which is a good deal in advance of work that was done elsewhere. Now I have certainly made an omission in not referring to the value of the pilot parachute. I was perhaps a little concerned to do two things. To give some idea of the, the history and the period of balloons, which I think myself is fascinating. The period before the aircraft and perhaps to mention now the sort of ramifications involved in parachute development. And therefore, I'm afraid that the period of the <coughs> development of the emergency parachute has tended to be a bit scanty. Certainly, the, the pilot parachute was very important. It is a fact, perhaps, that if you don't have a pilot parachute, you would probably be able to deploy but in those extremes where you need to bring the parachute out at, at low altitudes, it's important to get something to pull it out. Irving used a sort of umbrella-type spring, and his first uh, descent, pre-descent, was made with <coughs> that sort of affair. Subsequently, there have been spiral spring, conical designs, which uh, I think are a good deal better. 
What perhaps I should have mentioned, which Mr. Naylor's question has brought very much to mind, is that the pull of the parachute at the apex is very important in the avoidance of abnormal developments in the parachute. Uh, if you get a good hefty pull at the apex, which allow, makes the parachute go into a sort of long straight line before it can start to develop, this has some very useful adjuncts. It tends to reduce the abnormalities I've talked about, and it tends to reduce the shock load, because the, the parachute then, the main parachute, then has to overcome the, the drag produced by the auxiliary parachute, parachute when it inflates. And Martin Baker, a company, exploited this with a very good effect in their duplex stroke system, although I might perhaps say that such a similar system was proposed by Colonel Holt in about 1923. As far as clusters are concerned, yes, this is very important. Cluster, which was developed, I only showed a, a twin parachute, this is after all just the beginning of the family, I think I did show a major, the, the GQ-66 um, cluster shows the sort of device. Um, if you want high stability, you can get it with a cluster parachute. It does, however, have certain disadvantages. It's very difficult to make clusters of parachutes open uniformly, and therefore you sometimes pay a penalty in bulk because of this. But certainly it's a very useful way of achieving stability. Uh, uh, a not very clear stage in the evolution of the parachute was discovered that the permeability of the material uh, brought stability. At what stage did this happen? Was it discovered by chance or, or, or what happened? I think the actual, um, the, the, the idea uh, is fairly old, certainly about the, the early 20s. Um, it was a number of um, um, tests were done um, on the moments of parachutes in wind tunnels with porous shapes. It, I don't think that it was used to any extent or effectively it became an important um, factor until towards the beginning of the Second World War. The, the first um, really porous parachute to be used was the flare clock, the so-called flare clock which I referred to, which was uh, again, there's a DTD specification. These were used for flares, where pyrotechnic stores, where stability was quite important to avoid the glare uh, back to the pilot of the dropping aircraft. And um, this uh, certainly would have given the, um, the designer a very strong indication of stability. I think perhaps the relationship between the critical open speed and the permeability certainly didn't, uh, certainly wasn't uh, discovered by, except um, in, until about 1941, when Brown and his co-workers at Farnborough did this. It had a big effect on squidding, did it not? Indeed, yes. Jackson didn't terminate his lecture by saying that no space flight could have ended successfully without apparent, including the last three men. Uh, regret that we in this country have little interest apart from a little practical interest in such things. Well, as I think came in before the war went out again, I don't ever remember, don't ever remember getting much use. I advertised a lot, and I wonder why it did go out. It's a fact of idea. 
And secondly, about uh, using braided cord instead of ribbons for the lines. Uh, I don't see why that, well, what do they mean to learn uh, The thought that uh, the lines have been uh, rolled up individually when tape, in the full tape, and uh, be less inclined to tangle and cross as the braided cord certainly was advertised um, a good deal, and certainly many of the ideas of the past have perhaps have been adopted now, in a sense. Um, it's, it's an extremely important thing to be able to put your parachute where you find room for it. That is, that if you're designing a seat, um, um, or thinking in terms of the sort of role that a particular parachute has, um, what sort of degree of comfort, what degree of room we've got for it, is very important. I think it's probably best to say that um, the parachute has been, certainly been uh, superseded in the sense that now the ejection seat designer, as perhaps people will know if they look at the, saw the, um, the TSR2 parachute, ejection seat parachute, uh, exhibited at Farnborough, is in some sort of small area that's well away from the sort of the region of the man, man's back. He, they use, it's possible now perhaps to use areas in the configuration concerned which were not have been considered before. Um, it's, it's very much a question of finding how you can suit, or how you can cite the equipment you've got rather than, say, the attractive idea of having it in a in some sort of hat around the body. For example, um, if you're wearing a parasuit, you've got to cart this thing around with you all the time. Uh, modern pilots don't particularly want to have to get into an aircraft wearing a um, uh, wearing the whole um, unit with them. It's perhaps easier to just attach a few a few buckles when you're sitting inside the seat rather than in that. The, there are certain features of the parasuit which certainly were useful, and um, perhaps it's more difficult to explain why they're not, why they're not um, proceeded. For example, the ability to build a harness into an overall, for example, is, is useful, and, uh, but uh, there are obvious difficulties in adjustment uh, with a device like that. It tends to be a, perhaps a one-man, a one one-harness, which isn't very convenient. Um, sorry, I've now talked some question about that. Your second question was, Concerned with cordage, wasn't it? The first types of cordage were twisted. Twisted hemp, for example, or twisted flax. And these were of relatively low tenacities. So they weren't particularly... These were the sort of things that the old um, balloonists used. The observation balloon people. So these were not particularly useful. The braided cord came in, as it were, uh, um, as a second um, design, and is still extant today. Um, you can, in fact, sign a, a, a tape or a sort of a, a braided cord, and, in, and there are a um, considerable number of tape bringing lines in service, particularly with the heavy ones. Most brake parachute cordages are tapes, woven webbing. But if you want to 
um, do this sort of thing with the strengths that one designs man-carrying parachute bringing lines on, which are about 400 to 500 pound tensile strength, the tape becomes very small in dimension. You can make very high strength bulk ratio tapes. If you do this, you've got to stitch them to the cloth to take the load off, and you find it very much more difficult to get good strength attachments. The efficiency of such an attachment is lower. So that generally speaking, you don't get as good an efficiency in the area of man carrying as you would with a braided rigging line. But it's not true to say they're not used. They're used considerably, probably used more than braided. Any more questions? Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've kept our lecture going now for an hour and a half, or a little more. I'm afraid we've made him rather tired. However, we have thoroughly enjoyed it. We can assure you we thoroughly enjoyed it. And I think I might, on behalf of them, not only thank you, but congratulate you upon your extraordinary memory, the way in which you got up and answered these questions about, came from all over the place, whether it was scientific or technical, or to do with braiding and so on, answer them without a book. I congratulate you most heartily. And thank you very much also for bringing that film. Would you thank him in the usual manner?